Welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Kamara, and I am joined by Joe Gaudio. After uh, I thought I lost Joe for a while there, and uh, after I recorded the solo app after Winthrop and Stephen F. Austin, I, I thought initially, because I don't do many solos anymore for because I really don't want to, um, and, it, and I just it's it's tough to find that motivation after six years. I listened back, and it actually stayed on structure. As as those who listened heard, I was really wondering if I was just kind of rambling off and all kinds of stuff like that. But I did I do think it brought up some very valid points, and it did stay pretty much on topic. But now Joe is back here to join me, and uh, I get without getting too into it because i mean what we want to do mostly is give a quick i guess recap of virginia tech and uh, michigan state and then moving forward we'll talk about but since since i didn't get to hear nobody else got to hear your thoughts after uh stephen f austin and winthrop with without going for too long uh well how'd you feel about those games besides the fact yeah it stunk to lose to stephen f austin there's no way around that yeah well after a little time of uh licking my wounds and feeling sorry for myself as a, as a Duke fan. And you should have done more. I'll say it's your, it's your fault. They lost it. You should have done more. I know I could have done more. I mean, maybe I should change. I mean, my dog do that's what I do to help this team win, you know, big games. But it, I, I was very surprised. I was happy to see how they responded from that loss. I actually, you know, at the end of the day and, and being a coach, I do feel like you learn more from a loss and have it, they look a little more maybe in tune now but that loss to me was was hard for me to get over because that is honestly that's the worst loss I can ever remember watching because like we were actually talking before the pod started I mean that was literally like a Disney movie how the game ended and you know that that is a Disney movie I'll never watch if it does come out just so you know I refuse to watch that movie but it was just, I don't know. I, I think this team is ripe for the picking to lose games like that, but I do also think that they're pretty, they're pretty tough-minded on how they've rebounded. So, you know, I was, I was, um, I wanted to lock myself in my room for a couple of days, but I didn't. I kept <laughs> going, and and here we are after a couple of huge Duke Duke wins. So, you know, it's the ups and downs of a Duke season, I guess. The world does move on even after uh, Duke loses. So uh, it's good that you got past it. And um, I, I mentioned a lot of cliches last episode. I still think people are relying on cliches. I think they are ridiculous. I think obviously human nature applies to everything, especially sports, or not especially sports, but including sports. But I think the whole what's going on now is like Coach K sent a message. They got the message. They came back more mentally tough, all that stuff. I think it's nonsense. Um, I think basically they just it was it was the next two games after that were based on strategy and matchups and that's what it comes down to. I don't think they had any sort of like fire in their eyes or whatever people want to talk about. So we'll get into it more. But first, um, a couple things start. Let's just get the worst thing out of the way. I don't know what the deal is in the past couple years with Achilles injuries, but it's getting more and more uh, common. And I'm still waiting for that first athlete to fully come back from Achilles to the point where they were before. I think we talked about this once uh, during an off-season deep dive. I've talked about it plenty of times throughout the years before the Achilles started getting major. And 
it's just it sucks. And the specifics of what I'm talking about right now is Rodney Hood. He is, I believe, the third Duke player in history to, uh, or at least under the K era, to tear or rupture his Achilles. Uh, I remember Christian Leitner actually when he was he was starting to really play play well for the Hawks. I think that's when he tore his Achilles. Never the same. Elton Brand, everyone knows he was just dominant for the Clippers. Tore his Achilles. He, I mean, he could barely even like leave the ground when he jumped after that. And now Rodney Hood. And it's just, it's disappointing. So best of luck to his recovery. I don't want to hear any reports that typically come out about how, oh, like when they're recovering. It's like, oh, they look just as good as they did before. Let's see how he looks when he comes back. I am hoping he can kind of change the course of how things have gone. But so far, I mean, I mean, Dominic Wilkins came back back in the day, but he had to change his whole style of how he played. Terrell Suggs in football, he actually might be the best example, although with him it was kind of like, he would keep injuring other things because he would overcompensate and then other things would get injured. But he actually, I think, ended up tearing both of them. But he still, he played he played pretty well. And uh, obviously, we're all hoping for Kevin Durant to come back strong. But Rodney Hood, really disappointing. The rankings right now, if anyone cares, I do not. I'll put that out straight. I, I do not. Um, it's, it's December. I wouldn't even care if it was February. Like maybe a little bit as it gets closer and whatever. But I know many people do. And it, I guess it does give a good uh, kind of you see where you stand in a, in some way. So the net rankings just came out. I'm not going to pretend I'm super knowledgeable in that. But Duke is number 13 in the first net rankings. And they actually are the only team who is undefeated having played more than two Quadrant 1 games. Uh, they've played four Kansas, Georgetown, Michigan State, and Virginia Tech. They're 4-0. So uh, I guess – Good stuff. I mean, NC State was like number 30 going into the NCAA tournament last year in in net, and they didn't make it. So I don't even know how important it is, but I know it's talked about. Uh, AP, Duke's number four. Coaches, Duke is number five. Ken Palm, Duke is number two. And Bartorovic, uh, Duke is number four. So, I mean, uh, four, five, two, and four in the four major ones, and number 13 in the net, which I expect and many others do as well. I guess that kind of fluid changes all the time again i'm not even gonna pretend do you do pay attention to how much do you pay attention to the rankings and is there one you focus on more than anything else no i mean i don't really pay attention much to the rankings you know like you mentioned as it gets closer to march it's good to get a gauge or an idea of where you know teams may potentially be seated but for the most part that that you almost don't want to be the number one team right now so you know you know rankings are you know, it's going to be a revolving door all year. So just got to focus on getting quality wins and then you know, all that other computer stuff that I, you know, as even a math major can't begin to understand how they come to these. So I just, I just trust what they do and, and watch the games myself. And, and that's, that's about as far as I go with ranking. So yeah, it, it, it always blows my mind how much kind of people really care. Like, whether Jeff Goodman, it's not to single him out, or, or Seth Davis, whoever, they'll like release uh, their top, their top twenty-five on Twitter, and everyone will just come at them like it's whatever they did is like they're the stupidest person ever. It's like, dude, like who cares? It's just their opinion. But I, I don't know. I don't know if whatever people are people can do whatever they want. All right, but bottom line, yeah, I mean, you said it. It might not be a good thing to be number one. It's really. I don't know if you want to call it a down year or what. Obviously, it's still early. We haven't even gotten into much of conference season yet. But 
I don't know. There's really no great teams I've seen or even, like, very good. I think everyone's kind of vulnerable, and everyone could lose at any time, whatever matchup happens. So it's an interesting season. Like I, I don't know what to think about it, but it's been, I will admit, a little underwhelming so far on a national level. On a uh, Duke rivalry level, I think everyone is recognizing the struggles that UNC is going through. I won't pretend to have even come close to predicting it would start out anything like this. But the one thing I did, like when we did our initial ACC preview, I, I was uh, I was hiring them. I was still waiting to see if they could find a number two score for Cole Anthony. Um, but I did think they would just kind of get it together. They're Carolina, there's certain things. But then we recorded the next one, and I did kind of make an amendment. I said, Cole Anthony, the way his body is, he's not the type where it's not like an R.J. Barrett where he's like huge and like he can handle really just everything. So I wonder, like, if they don't find a, a, a number two and just more guys who can help out overall, he could wear down quickly. It might take a toll on his body. And, I'm not, again, I'm not going to pretend to have predicted anything. But that is kind of what's happened immediately, where he's getting no help. Carolina can't shoot at all. They're not creating turnovers. They're not getting out in transition. When they do, it's not going well. And it, everything is falling on Cole Anthony's shoulders. And it's not working out well. And then he got injured. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to be good for Gonzaga, but they just lost to Wofford for the second time in, uh, in uh, three years. And, uh, I mean, right before Duke plays Wofford. So it's interesting. Duke played Virginia Tech who was coached by Wofford's ex-coach. Then uh, Carolina plays Wofford. Now Duke plays Wofford. So a lot, a lot of Wofford going on. But Carolina right now, what are they, 7-5 uh, or something? Um, hold on. Yeah, I mean, they are right now 6-4. and four. They're 6-4 and four going yeah. to Gonzaga to play. Oof. That mm. is... Without Anthony, possibly. And Leaky Black is out, too, so... Yeah, and uh, I mean Sterling Manley, he's just been cursed with injuries. His career, he's already—I think he's out for the year. He had to have surgery. So, uh, yikes! I mean, they really—they—they were—they were running out of guys to put on the floor, and the one guy they could never lose is Cole Anthony. I mean, so Carolinas—they've lost four out of five. They lost to uh, Michigan, um, then home Ohio State, away at Virginia, um, home. Home, te- not really technically home. What was that at? Uh, where did where did they play there? Um, they played at. Uh, I want to say Reynolds Coliseum, but Carmichael. They 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 played at Carmichael. Um, so I guess that could be considered home, but not really. But either way, they're not scoring. I mean, they can't find a way to score. And the one thing with Carolina, man, they have always scored. So it's uh, it's rough goings there. I've never seen Roy. Look as de- I've never <laughs> I've never seen Roy look as depressed. As he is, uh, one guy after uh, the Virginia loss, they asked him if he'd ever felt this thin in the post. And he answered the question like, I don't know, man, I'm just sorry. I don't know if it's thin in the post. He answered the question like thin in the post was like an emotional feeling, like he was feeling thin in the post. And I was just like, that's kind of remarkable if you take away like <laughs> like the perspective of it. Like that he's like, he's almost invented like, are you feeling thin in the post today? He's like, yeah, I'm feeling thin in the post. And it's like, oh my God. Well, he's, he's very creative. So, uh, yeah, but either, I mean, dude, I, I have a ton of respect yeah. for him. It, I, I don't want to see him like that. And I know not everyone feels the way I do, but I like it best when both Duke and Carolina are elite and hopefully they can get it together. But man, 
I don't know where they're going to find that number two score unless, I mean, I said their X factor this year was uh, back at his development. He's going to have to develop really, really fast in order for that to happen. And Cole Anthony is going to have to stay healthy. All right, so here is a, here's a stat. I mean, I could save it in case, like, um, UNC lost at uh, Gonzaga, but might, might as well just use it now. All right, so... We can call it uh, Coach K-Fax or something. All right. From 2000... All right. When I say 2010, I'm talking technically about 2009. Whatever year I mention, it'll be the year before. Because I'm going to talk about um, November and December games. So I'm going to mention the full season, but consider it the year before. So uh, from 2010 to 2020, and again, let me just say, like, technically, that would be 2009 to 2019. Carolina has lost 30 games in November and December. 30 games. All right, Coach K lost 13 games in his first three years in November and December. Obviously, those first three years, total rebuild. Then he lost one the following year. Then in the next 36 seasons, he's lost 32 games in November and December. 32 games in 36 seasons. Technically, you could say 33 and 37, but 32 makes it even closer to, like, UNC if you want to use that as a comparison. So, again, UNC has lost 30 30 pre-New Year's games in the 11-year stretch from 2010 to 2020, and K has lost 32 in the last 36 years. So, just a, a, a bit of perspective from anyone who kind of acts like the world's ending anytime they do lose an early game because it's so rare. They have, and since that third year, or I'm sorry, starting in the fourth year, which was, I believe, uh, 1984, they've never lost, they've never lost more than two. Never. Like, that's crazy. Even in, I believe it was 2000, so I guess technically 99, when they lost the first two games of the season, I think it was to Stanford and UConn, still didn't lose more than uh, two games that year. It's nuts. You know, I want to hear something even crazier. With all right, not they did. They don't play. Carolina does not play Texas or Kentucky this year in the in the non-conference or November December. But from uh, in the ten previous years, from 2010 to 2019, they lost ten times total to those two teams. How many times do you think Duke lost in those same 10 years in November and December? Take a wild guess. Again, 10 times UNC lost to uh, Texas and um, Kentucky. Four. Okay. <laughs> that, that, that's, that, I mean, in 10 years, if Duke, <coughs> lost, if Duke lost four times in those 10 years. Well, I mean, uh, we're talking ridiculous numbers, so. All right, Duke lost ten times total. So the same the same amount of times that uh, UNC lost to Texas and Kentucky, Duke lost ten total times, like to uh, any teams in that span. Hey, man, you ruined it. You ruined it by guessing four. No, just kidding. But uh, I mean, it's still well, okay, I mean, really. Are you calling me a spo- are you calling us spoiled Duke fans? Is that what we're saying? We're the first world Duke fan here that's licking my wounds over one November loss. I'm just saying it's a wild comparison to make <laughs> once you take a step away and look at it because, I mean, it's just – it's insanity. It's really insanity. I mean, you, you look at those uh, 
those 32 losses in 36 years, I mean, I think Michigan was actually five of those times, like just Michigan. That's the only team that's that really, for uh, a small period of time, I guess not really had Duke's number, but they they beat Mich- they beat Duke a bunch of times. The only other teams to uh, have multiple wins against K in November and December um, after those first three years, UConn, uh, all these have two: uh, UConn, Stanford, Illinois, Kansas, and Arizona. So those those six teams, including Michigan, make up 15 of Duke's 31 non-conference losses. Yeah, so I will say it's very rare for Duke to lose in, in November and December. Much more common for other teams. So I, I just think it's, it's one of those things to take a step back and appreciate, at least in my opinion. So I just thought that was a kind of a, a fun little fact there. All right, so basically um, one, one more quick kind of interesting thing. Um, Brown, I'm sorry, that uh, they were playing Wofford on Thursday, and Virginia Tech they played on Friday. Those are that's those that was the last Friday, and this is going to be the last Thursday for some reason. I don't know why they never play on Sunday this year ever. So all that's left is the other four days. So after Brown on Saturday, they have five Tuesday Saturdays, two Monday Saturdays, one Wednesday, one Wednesday Saturday, and then one week where it's just a Saturday. So we get a little more consistent now. It is interesting. I kind of enjoyed some of those Sunday games. I know for the big football people, it doesn't that won't get in the way. But I actually even remember, like, I remember watching like Duke play Florida State on Super Bowl Sunday one year before the game. Uh, and it was just kind of cool. It was like a kind of a warm-up almost. So, yeah. Any, anyway, but there will not be any Sunday games this year. It'll just be mostly Tuesday, Saturdays, a couple Monday, Saturdays, and a Wednesday, Saturday, and then a sole Saturday. All right, so just to kind of go over Dukes first, because as with all young teams, I know there are some guys who are not young, but there are a lot of them. All right, so Kansas, it was the first first game overall combined with the first two big lineup that Duke faced, where Kansas used the two big lineup. They had uh, Georgia State. They they were the first team to run with Duke. They weren't afraid. Pretty much saved Duke, in my opinion, by zoning and just draining the energy, which allowed more half court. And kind of in the second half, Duke just played keep away with the offensive rebounds. Uh, Cal was the first continuous zone team. And uh, Vern, he really just dominated the nail at the free throw line to be a crazy mismatch there. Talent mismatch. Uh, Georgetown, that was the first time facing a press offense. Wendell had his best game, and Cassius had a huge second half. Stephen F. Austin, that was the first time going against the big-to-big playmakers. They hadn't done that before. There was a lot of getting caught in no man's land. It was the first time going against leakouts, leakouts caused by transition defensive issues, or more specifically, what I mentioned in the last pod, just not rotating back and being too over-aggressive going for the defensive rebounds. And as far as the big-to-big playmakers... If you're extending the defense every time in half court and you're not causing turnovers and it's allowing easy entries, maybe stop doing that. So, uh, yeah. And also, it was the first time, hopefully, Coach K, first and only time, hopefully Coach K learned he should actually use his team's versatility. So then Winthrop, first time forced to adapt to an injury with Cassius. With Michigan State, the first road game. <clears throat> Virginia Tech, first conference game, first conference road game, first time going against an all-really smallish lineup. I think Virginia Tech's like number 329 in the country in size. And, again, the first time proving that roster versatility. 
So a lot of firsts right now. All right, so Coach K said he basically he just junked everything because of Virginia Tech's unconventional small spaced out lineup. How do you feel about that? Do you do you agree with him in in, in those words that he just junked everything? I mean, I don't know. I mean, I just I think it's gonna be a weird year in terms of you know. There's so many different ways that we can try to produce. So it's hard to. I don't know if he just completely junked everything, but I do. I don't know. I just think I think it's a very weird roster compared to different Duke roster configurations that we've had in the past. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think he's going to have to do a little more coaching this year than he may have had to in the past. I mean, first of all, yeah, I did say he. I mean, that's what I was asking for more than anything at the beginning of the season: the fluid adjustments, fluid kind of uh, adapting mm-hmm. to the team's skill set instead of kind of forcing or hoping your team adapts to yours. And I don't understand what he means by junking. I think I kind of can assume that it was just playing a different type of lineup. But that, to me, was not junking. It was not junking at all. Basically, all it was was recognizing he has versatile skill sets on this roster, on his roster this season. So, again, he played to their strengths rather than forcing the reverse. That's it. So, again, with this crazy versatility... Use it. Unlike against Stephen F. Austin, he used it. He made an adjustment in the second half. I mean, he gets tons of credit and deserved deserved credit for, like, random things he's done throughout the years, whether it be a zone against um, against Louisville, although that was not as much in-game as uh, kind of it was planned, I guess, in the couple days before in 2015. Whether, I mean, last year he was uh, using Trey more in the second half to kind of flashed to the free throw line against Syracuse in the game at Syracuse in that second game instead of just having someone stand there and wait for it to uh, break the zone. There was uh, Zion being used against Gonzaga more in the post. But I think everyone gives him so much credit for what he's done overall and deservedly so, like I said. But these aren't things that like we should act like are like works of God. These are things which most coaches should be able to do, recognize what you what can change during a game and do it. And I'm not going to say I always know what that is, uh, but it's good to see him at least try stuff. And even something as weird as like he went he got a little too frisky against Virginia Tech. He actually he used Baker at the four for a couple possessions. And I was like, "Whoa, chill out there." And like huh. really quickly that was changed. But it's good to see him just try stuff. It's when he gets too stuck in his ways. And one thing I'm going to do for this podcast, because I'm going to deep dive everything in the next one, there is, I'm going to be joined by an old buddy, hopefully uh, for one in a, I think next week, where it's kind of going to be a deep dive on just everything going on. So I want to save a lot for then, but I'm going to go over Brendan Marks. He is covering Duke. He's the beat reporter for The Athletic. And I kind of avoid too much of like focusing on what other people write and say and all that stuff because honestly, I do. I just it's better if I just stick to myself because I will. I just don't feel comfortable because t- most of what they write is the same, and most of what they say is the same, and it kind of it focuses on like really simple cliches. And I just I don't want to feel like I'm ever focusing on anything but what I feel because what I feel is technically usually different. Um, But Brendan Marks, he is trying to do things a little differently and not necessarily with this article that he wrote, but he did write an article about just 10 thoughts on Duke. 
um, after 10 games. And I'm going to go down just kind of one by one, and I'm going to give my opinion of what he wrote. And I am going to ask for yours because Brennan, he seemed like a really nice guy. I actually uh, reached out to him. I was like, I'm crazy with this. Like I always like deep dive every game, rewatch, break up into clips and rewatch everything. I was like, if you ever want any, anything, I'm not saying you'll need it or whatever with that, but I'm here. And uh, then I didn't actually send him anything because I just got really busy. So I thought this was kind of a good way. If I agree with him or disagree, I think it's just, it's a good way to just get, get everyone kind of acclimated to the fact that he's for the athletic. He is going to be covering Duke. Hopefully he will do a great job. And I just want to kind of give his work um, the notice that uh, I feel it deserves and react to it. Um, a, co- a couple things before we get into that, though. In terms of the lineups, you said it was really interesting because there's so many kind of – this roster is very different. Um, how many to- – if you had to take a wild guess, this is – I'm not at, I'm not saying you should get even close or whatever, but how many lineups, five-man lineups, do you think Duke has used this year? Like different – whether it's starting or at any point in the game, you mean? Like at any, any combination? Five original court. lineups. 35. He's used a hundred, so wow. that is. Uh, I feel like thirty-five is. Um, I mean a lot actually. Yeah, I mean I could go through different teams, but I mean, I collected this information after the Virginia Tech game, and at that point, Duke was third in terms of most lineups used. Um, where, where is it? Uh, Florida State, I know that was number one in the ACC, and. Uh, yeah, I don't actually think I have that written down. Um, I think maybe Wake Forest was uh, after that. But either way, um, I, I think when you see that number, it does make you, or I'm saying you, me excited because there is so much more versatility. And with garbage time filtered out, 79 lineups even so, that's still that's still really good. Um, what, what I've noticed is that sometimes we can get too focused on just the overall number. And I think we need to recognize that Duke has, they haven't played too many competitive games in the second half. When they have played competitive games in the second half, whether whether it be, I think Kansas was just random. First game, totally random. But we can look at Georgetown and Stephen F. Austin, and the two things about those two games which stand out to me is he basically used the same lineup or like six deep for each of those. He really didn't use that much. So when it's close, I think they're still... We, it's still a wait and see because Virginia Tech, they ended up pulling away. Michigan State, they ended up pulling away. Georgia State, they ended up pulling away. So there's not really a whole lot to base on in terms of, oh, he's just going to keep switching. He's going to keep adjusting. No, he kind of falls back on these stubborn tendencies to stick with the same. And sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. And he says he can kind of sense what's going on in the first couple minutes of every game, and that's what he does, and sometimes it may work, and he obviously has the resume to prove it. But it, when it doesn't, I think we've had we've seen some problems in recent years, or even like, I mean, I can't speak to like 80s or early 90s, but since I've been watching consistently, it has been something that's uh, at least worth pointing out, especially when you have such versatile talent like this team but not crazy dominant individual talent. 
All right, so um, let's see. In, uh, in, in terms of the lineups, an interesting thing, I'm not trying to get into too much plus minus. I think that you got to be careful with, especially when they haven't played many games, so it's a small sample, especially when kind of the, the, the teams they're playing against, the talent level may differ. But it's just wild to look at this. For the entire season, Duke's most played lineup, Trey, Cassius, Moore, Hurt, and Vern, they've been outscored by 15. Uh, Georgetown through Virginia Tech, games 6 through 10, games six through ten. only three of the most eight played lineups were a plus. Five were a minus. Stephen F. Austin through Virginia Tech, games 7 through 10, four of the five most played lineups were a minus. Winthrop through Virginia Tech, eight of ten. Of the five most played lineups, two were a plus, two were a minus, and one tied. MSU through Virginia Tech, games 9 and 10, four of the nine most played were a plus, four were a minus, and one tied. And Virginia Tech, the six most played, plus, plus, minus, minus, tie, tie. So it's just really interesting how the lineups that are getting the most time aren't always the ones that succeed the most. So that's just, to me, what that shows is that there's he needs to adjust every single game. There's not going to be one set lineup, at least right now, which proves like this is just we're going with this and it doesn't matter who that opponent is. There has to be that constant adjustment and that fluid adjustment. So that's what I take out of that. Um, then an interesting set I saw in Ken Palm, which would have been a little bit better before UNC's last game, but still pretty impressive. Duke, they're the only team in the ACC to have 10 players getting 30% of the minutes. Like, that's that that's really interesting to get that many. And they are also the only team with only one player getting over 60% of the minutes. So nine of their players are getting between 30 and 60%, which is really impressive. Florida State and North Carolina. No, I think just Florida State, they're the only team with eight players getting over 30%. So Duke has two more than that. And Florida State and North Carolina are the only teams with more, with uh, less than three players getting uh, more than 60% of the minutes. But Duke... Nine players between 30 and 60, and Trey is the only one who is over 60. But he is going to die if you keep him on as much as they have. He Right now, I actually took these stats down a couple of days ago. It might not be exactly up to date. He was fifth in the ACC. With, he please played 85.2% of the minutes. Before, it was uh, Elijah Hughes, 90.8%. Michael DeVoe, 90.3. Kihai Clark, 86.5. Brandon Childress, 85.9. And then Trey. If you eliminate Central Arkansas, because that's when he kind of knocked his head, then he's played 93.3% of Duke's minutes. If you filter out garbage time, Trey Jones has played 96.3% of Duke's minutes. All right, so as they're going to be assumedly facing a tougher schedule, tougher opponents... I hope he can. I mean, he. I, I hope he eats his Wheaties every morning. If that uh, does, Wheaties still exist? I don't even know. But uh, I mean, that used to be a saying. You big gotta They eat shouldn't. <laughs> um, Not so much you, sugar for me. <laughs> so ninety-six point three of, gar, of non-garbage time minutes. So he is the one constant. The rotation. Every like, I think they've had seven starting lineups at this point. I mean, even Vern has been uh, kind of switched out against Virginia Tech. There's no definite of anything with this Duke team in the rotation except for Trey. 
Do you think that's a good team or a bad thing, or wait and see, or it's just it's interesting? I mean, because I will say right now, I just find it interesting, and it's a wait and see for me. How do you take it? I agree. I mean, I don't know. That's that number on Trey is terrifying. To be honest <laughs> with you, that's. I mean, for that poor kid too. I mean, you know, I wonder why they get. Uh, hopefully, he hasn't even gotten off the couch in the two weeks during finals week. But I don't know. That kid. For some other reason, man, he finished his game true. So I applaud his, so far, I applaud his ability to be, uh, you know, in, in, in good shape. So the training staff is doing a good job with him. That's crazy. Yeah. 96%. 96%. I, and, like, we're talking Division One basketball. This isn't, you know, we're playing it, you know, your local YMCA running up and down the court. I mean, this is, like, legit athletes, and it's it's that's out of control. He, hopefully we can find a way to tailor him back a little bit. I think what it says more than anything also is Duke hasn't had the crazy routes that they usually have. This, I mean, I remember last year when Duke was just mauling these teams by, like, 100. So, obviously, they, like, because garbage time only starts in the second half. Like, there is no statistic that includes garbage time in the first half. If you're beating a team by 3,000 in the first half, it's still not technically garbage time. I mean, the the, the uh, where I get the stats, like, it, it it explains specifically. I don't have it in front of me. But no matter what, it's not the first half. So the fact that Central Arkansas wasn't included, that eliminated that. And then Colorado State, he actually, he, I think he played most of the first half. So I think it also just shows that there hasn't been a lot of blowout time in the first half, when Duke usually, not I don't want to say usually, well, I got a lot of the time they have in in uh, recent years. They've just kicked other teams' ass right, like right away. This Duke team, it's just not going to happen like that. So, uh, yeah, he's got to be in there, and he's got to get used to it. And I don't know. I guess that's all. That's really all there is to say about that. So, uh, yeah, ninety six point three non garbage time minutes in the non-Central Arkansas games this season. All right, so do you want to – I'll leave it up to you. Do you want to start talking about the two games, the Michigan State and Virginia Tech, or talk more about the overall team right now? I mean, we'll do both, but what what do you want to start with? We can get into the games if you want. All right, Michigan State, I will say, man, I read an article uh, recently about uh, Cassius Winston and – it's it's pretty it's pretty rough, man. It's it's, it's heartbreaking. I mean, he lost his brother. Um, he lost his brother to suicide, and there's just no way anyone can mentally prepare for that. Um, that I mean, it's been recent. He's still he's. It, it was about how like his. He he thought the refuge would be like the basketball court. It's not happening. Talked about even like with Duke, he was. Uh, I mean, it was kind of like a fog, and he's just going through a lot right now. Having said that, Duke played really well, and, and I'm not going to try to say like it was because of anything having to do with. I mean, I do think it was a factor, but I'm, I'm not going to say. It. I do think it's just worth pointing out because Cashless uh, Winston, he is such a good player, seems like a good dude, and it's just it's really sad um, the way it's happened. Um, so he's just trying to kind of get by one day at a time. And Michigan State, if he can get back to his elite playing, which, I mean, he when he's on, there's not many better than uh, Michigan State will jump up. And Michigan State, though, against Duke, I mean, Aaron Henry, I don't know what the deal is with him because he's an NBA talent that just seems to be, I don't know if he's struggling with the uh, expectations or what. He was invisible against Duke. He, like, 
he didn't even like try to do anything. Like it's not like they stopped. He was just simply invisible. So that pretty much took away a weapon there. Watching them, I can see why Tom Izzo is was not happy that Joey Hauser. He they were hoping to get him as a transfer from Marquette, um, a uh, kind of um, a four who can shoot from outside. They can't shoot. So I mean, it was just and then. I can't remember his name. They lost one of their top scorers, a senior who was out most of last year, but they Langford. lost him. Yeah, exactly. Um, yep. Langford, Josh Langford. And it's just, they're, they, they just don't have many weapons. And so then when you start the game and pretty quickly, Xavier Tillman picks up two fouls. It was just rough. It was rough. And uh, Vern Carey just pretty much dominated inside. Michigan State couldn't shoot. And Duke really had their way. Trey was locked in from the get-go. And my guy, Javin Delorier, he uh, started he out the season. Awesome. He was so good. I mean, he wow. started out the season with uh, three pretty good games, then went through a four-game stretch where it's just is, it was not good. And now we got him back. We got Javin back. The energy, the, the hustle, the uh, – I mean, what he does, it's just not everything will show up on in the box tour. I thought he was a difference maker. It was basically him and Vern. They even played a couple minutes together with each other. Uh, and I just, I just thought they, them and Trey, they were just huge difference makers. And with Michigan State's inability to shoot from outside, it saved Matthew Hurt. Matthew Hurt is somebody who he is, uh, he is somebody to watch this season on his defense and the defensive end. He can produce on the offense. I have no doubt about that. On the defensive end, it's going to be what teams will be able to exploit him. Michigan State didn't because they just couldn't spread at the offense. But, I mean, he's having trouble. He's having a lot of trouble on defense, and uh, it didn't affect him against Michigan State. And he was one of the guys, along with Vernon Carey, who subbed out against Virginia Tech. I don't want to say he was to blame for that. I mean, it was just the lineup that worked. Um, but Matthew Hurt, he's going to – there's going to be times when you can say, like, his offense was huge. And there's going to be times when you could say, like, his defense is just – it's too much of a detriment to kind of keep having him in there. But M- Michigan State didn't hurt, and I thought uh, Goldwire played some uh, big minutes then. I said, Goldwire, there's going to be games when he absolutely makes, makes a huge impact. That was one of them. That was absolutely one of them. And then kind of Duke got out to, to a big lead. Then Michigan State started coming back. And that's when you got a guy like uh, Joey Baker. He just hit some huge shots. And, I mean, it was – he really, really impressed me that game. That kind of nail in the coffin that you need. And Baker, I mean, after, after Michigan State headed into Virginia Tech, I mean, the stat on him was absurd. It's like uh, – he was number five in the country in points per possession among like 2,500 players with at least a certain amount of possessions. Right now, he's actually still number like 30 among uh, players with something like uh, 45 possessions or something like that in synergy. I mean, he is just huge. And that's even after uh, two points in four possessions versus Virginia Tech. I think what he provides is almost more than just what the stats will show. It's the threat, which is huge. And I'll go into when talking about Duke's potential or weaknesses and potential further weaknesses. I mean, he is somebody who can have a good deal in preventing those. So Michigan State, I thought it was 
a, uh, a great matchup. I thought Michigan State was just really struggling, and uh, Duke took control and didn't and didn't let up. It wasn't like because they had just come off a game Stephen F. Austin where they were up by a lot, and then they start, started turning it over. Their turnovers weren't really a lot of them weren't forced. As I went over each one last podcast, and they all came early, so. Most of the second half, it wasn't about them turning it over. It, they gave up the full momentum in the first half, and they let Stephen F. Austin hang in there. Michigan State, Michigan State was too good to just go away. But I think Duke did a good job kind of keeping their foot on the gas without just being mindless with the ball. And while Coach K said Stephen F. Austin forced a lot of turnovers, I would disagree. I think Duke gave the ball away a lot of times early in that game to let Stephen F. Austin hang around. They did not do so versus Michigan State. I thought Virginia Tech, it was simply a matter of, like I said before, using the versatility. I think when that horrifyingly bad Jaleel Okafor, the Okafor theory was written in 2015, I think this was more of the idea of what they wanted. They just weren't able to explain it correctly in terms of, they kept saying they, they, that Jaleel Okafor should be used less possessions each game. No. It was just a couple games where he wasn't a good matchup. And the way that basketball is these days, there are going to be some matchups which just don't work for the big men. Like, unless they are... I mean, he, he's, his footwork is really good, but still, I mean, he's huge. And, I mean, same thing with Hurt. I mean, Hurt has... Uh, it doesn't He's not the fleetest of foot anyway. So, I mean, those two guys just wasn't a good matchup. So... In the same way, in 2015, there were some matchups, and hey, maybe Jaleel Okafor isn't the best this game. Kind of, I mean, even in like the national championship when Kaminsky was taking him outside, we could see like a Meal and even like a Plumley at times were better matchups. Just it's just the way it is. It doesn't. It's not an insult or ragging on Duke's bigs. It's just game to game. You're going to have to make adjustments. So it wasn't um, every game that Jaw needs to be used less. It's just certain games. And this game for Vernon Carey, it just was. It was one of those games, and Kay recognized that, and he made the adjustment. It wasn't junking. It was meeting Virginia Tech's small lineup with a small lineup of your own. Duke has the versatility to be able to do that, and they did. It's that simple. And I thought, uh, I mean, Jack White at the five. I had been saying I want to see Wendell Moore at the four. Before that game, before Virginia Tech, Wendell Moore had been used a total of uh, – Two offensive possessions and one defensive possession. Both, all of them occurring versus Georgetown. All in, a, I think, a 45-second period. All three were like turnovers immediately. It was. It's actually kind of funny to watch. I posted that on Twitter. But, um, I mean, he hadn't been used before, and I'd been wanting that. While this game, I could say, like, oh, yes, yeah, Steve uh, Wendell Moore at the four. This is what I'm talking about. This is what I wanted. I do think it was very matchup dependent. I still think he could be used at the four. In other situations and with more normal lineups, I know, I know that Kay loves Hurt and he wants to use Hurt the four a ton, and I do understand when Duke needs more offense that might not be a bad idea, but I do think Wendell Moore at the four, even in regular types of matchups, I think that could be huge. So I, I do think uh, that was a big deal. I mean Wendell Moore when he was in there, I mean that changed everything. Then Goldwire again, huge impact. I'm not going to say. It's going to happen every game. But there are games when he's going to be huge for Duke. And that was one of them, especially when you consider Duke's weakness. One of them is the lack of a secondary ball handler after Trey. 
Jordan Goldwire, well, the rest of his offense is pretty limited. I mean, props to him. I mean, he made a couple threes in Virginia Tech. I almost fainted. Um, he can handle the ball. There's no question about that. Wendell, Wendell Moore is an adventure. I mean, that's just the way it is with him handling the ball. So Goldwire, he can really, he can really handle the ball. He can create steals. And I just think he is somebody who will, again, in the future, be good for certain types of matchups. Um, so how did you feel about the uh, Michigan State-Virginia Tech games, especially considering Stanley was injured versus Winthrop? They, they used a whole ton of lineups versus Winthrop. So going, going into your first road game um, against uh, Michigan State, they were without Cassius Stanley. Do you think there was a little bit of uh, – you, do you know what the Patrick Ewing theory is, the Ewing theory? No. What's that? Where a team, when they lose their star, and I'm not, I'm not saying he's their star, but like he's a, he's among the better players, like the rest of the team somehow like they play even better without him for a period of time, and it makes everyone think like, oh, they're better without the star, which which has happened with dumb Duke fans in recent years. With uh, every time somebody goes like Bagley went out, and Duke played a couple really good games without it, and they're like, ooh, is Duke better without Bagley? And it happened with uh, Jason Tatum. It happened with everyone in, in terms of, like, when they're out for a couple minutes or when they're out for a game and Duke plays, plays well, everyone wants to jump to conclusions and say, like, oh, they're better without them. And it's just, like, it's mind-numbing. So there was a little bit of that. But at the same time, I think when Stanley went out, it kind of got Kay out of his comfort zone of playing the same lineup over and over as he did versus Stephen F. Austin. So I'm not going to say it was a good thing that Stanley went out. But it forced Kay to adapt and be versatile against Winthrop, and I think that might have uh, been taken forward as he moved on to Michigan State, Virginia Tech. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I much rather see Stanley out there on the court. I think yeah. he does a lot for that team that that uh, nobody really else on the team can do. But I was I was just I was happy in the sense that Duke came out; they were the aggressor at Michigan State. And then did what they were supposed to do. Like they continued to put their foot on the pedal. I mean, I know uh, Michigan State had trouble hitting shots and they struggled to score and whatever. But Duke just continuously kept attacking, 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 and that they didn't do that. At least in my opinion, they didn't do that against Stephen F. Austin. You know, every now and then they seem to get a lead and they seem to try to cruise a little bit and and and, and think that lead's going to grow. But in terms of the Virginia Tech game, Virginia Tech came out and kind of. Um, was shooting the ball pretty good at the beginning, hit him like uh, Duke started to chip away toward the end of the first half and then got it pretty close. And then just the switch to the different lineup was huge. And Baker, you know, the sh- some shots that Baker hit in that Michigan State game, you could just tell he's shooting with a huge amount of confidence. But, um, you know, everybody seemed to step up in that Michigan State game. And same thing for Virginia Tech. And it's just the kind of team we are this year. It's an all-hands-on-deck kind of team. We don't have – we don't have the top to bottom talent that we've had in the past. So we're going to have to find these lineups that are working and then ride the hot hand. And that's what we did in both those games. And listen, down year, not for Virginia tech down year, not for Michigan state, two road games back to back. Those I'll take those. Yeah. Those are uh, tough. Those are tough to come back. So, yeah. I mean, obviously this non-conference schedule hasn't been the most demanding, but at the same time, as right. you said, wins on the road, they should not be taken for granted. And, uh, yeah, I mean, get, ask get all pre- these other teams that are going through it. You know, I mean, you've seen Ohio State drop, you've seen Michigan State drop, you've seen all these teams losing 
road games to non um, non ranked teams. I mean, you know, we could definitely could have could have lost to Virginia Tech, and and you know they rallied, and it's a place that we have not done too well in over the past. So it was nice to have us score more points than Virginia Tech for, for once in Blacksburg, and what's been about a forty year run. I feel like. I mean, the curse of buzz, I guess, uh, that, that's gone. I mean, <laughs> that's true. It that's was true. three straight at Virginia Tech, but besides that, like, I mean, it hasn't been exactly a house of horrors, but three straight times playing at Virginia Tech, I, I guess I can understand how it might seem like more. Plus the 2015, I, I think Duke won in overtime that game, but it's still pretty tough. But, uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of recency bias, yeah, I guess Virginia Tech is awful. But overall, it hasn't exactly been. I mean, K still has a winning record by a good amount um, against Virginia right. Tech in his career, even against, uh, well, what is his name? Frank, um, who's it good for? <laughs> I can't remember his name. Like Frank Greenberg? Greenberg? What's his name? No, not Frank. Seth Greenberg. Who, who, Seth, who, Seth Greenberg. Seth um, Greenberg? Yeah, who, 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 like yeah. he had like two wins against Duke, and everyone acted like he would beat them every year, even though it was like two wins in like how many games? Like 20? So I don't know. But either way. Um, it's good to get that win against Virginia Tech. I loved just the fact that Kay was willing to be versatile, use the versatile lineup, willing to adapt, using you willing to go unconventional, willing to take someone out of the game in Vernon Carey, which, I mean, uh, before that game, you would think, like, he has to be on the court at all times. So it was willing to go outside of the norm. Whether that holds true moving forward game to game, fluidly within the game, I don't know. I would worry that Kay, he has a tendency to go back to his tendencies and be stubborn. Everyone loves to imagine him as the most uh, adapt uh, coach that adapts to anything the most. Yeah, I mean, because there's like a couple huge things throughout the years you can always go to, but he's really not. And uh, with the talent that he's had, if he has, if he was willing to be a little more adaptable in the last decade, we could have had some different results in the tournament. So, I mean, Stephen F. Austin, the one thing I said the most is that felt like an NCAA tournament loss where like Duke they stick with the same lineup the whole time they start tightening up the other team starts playing free there's really obvious things you can see that coach K could have done to adapt he doesn't do any of them then the other team just ends up winning and he's like well I guess it's just my team wouldn't listen to me and it's like what are you talking about but uh yeah anyway we're past Stephen F. Austin at this point but uh yeah I mean I think it's impossible to say it was anything but two really impressive wins and as you said there's a lot of teams going down i don't think there are any if, if many dominant teams so yeah take take it take it as is and uh they play Wofford brown and then get started new year's eve all right so as i said now let's uh let's go through brendan marks his uh 10 thoughts on duke after 10 games and brendan marks again the duke Beat reporter for The Athletic. Number one, too much is being made of the Stephen F. Austin upset. He was talking about, yeah, it's a bad look. Too much is being made of it. And he was talking about how, like, Stephen F. Austin, they're, they're high up there in steal percentage. And basically that's what the problem was for Duke. Duke turned, Duke turned it over a whole bunch of times. And that was it. It, would, it doesn't represent... The two teams as a whole, in terms of if they played 100 times, Stephen F. Austin might not win again, but the turnovers were the difference in that game. Do you agree or disagree? I don't agree. I don't I don't think turnovers were. So I think there's 
but there are a couple. I mean, you said you know people are overreacting and whatever about. I mean, cannot lose at home to Stephen F. Austin. I don't care what what anybody writes in the news. I mean, you just can't lose to that team at all. It just can't happen. <laughs> There's can't analysis. Happen. There's the analysis. Yeah, <laughs> all right, you just, you can't, just can't, can't do it. It's sport. illegal. It's illegal. Yeah. It's I have a question: Should the Duke possible. players all be arrested for losing? Is it illegal? They should not be arrested, but but they should at least. Um, yeah, I don't know what they should. I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't know how. I don't know. I mean, that's my, my crazy analysis is you have to score more points than Stephen F. Austin at home. You okay. just have to find a way to do so. And they didn't. And, I mean, I'm apparently still overreacting. So No, no it's, all, it's fun. I welcome whatever you think. Um, and uh, so basically, the first 18 minutes plus a few seconds, Duke had 11 turnovers. That's when I, I said they were just being careless with the ball. The next 22 minutes, though, it's, uh, the last couple, the last yeah. couple minutes of the first half, combined with the entire second half, they had five turnovers, five turnovers. That's it. And then they turned it over six times in seven possessions in overtime because, as I mentioned last podcast, they, I think they just froze up. They just look kind of like, like holy crap. And I mean, two shot clock violations, like that's just, I mean, embarrassing. Yeah, there's yeah. nothing being run in terms of K, like going back to his like spread ISO sets. I don't, I don't want to. I mean, I, I've gone over, I went over all of that in my last spot, so I don't want to rehash that. But the bottom line, no, it wasn't because of turnovers at all. During during the entire second half, Duke wasn't turning it over much. It was about the the exact specific things that I said I, I mentioned over and over last podcast that don't need to be rehashed now. But I, I guess in 10 seconds, if I can do it. All right. Too far extended out half-court defense, allowing uh, easy entries into the post, then big-to-big action, uh, allowing leakouts because of the over-reliance on offensive rebounding, Stanley especially, so not rotating back, and obvious sets in an offense kind of standing around, a lot, lot of waiting, and Kay not changing his lineups enough. Okay, that, that, so that's it. All right, so that's my thoughts on number one. Number two, Vernon Carey may not be an NBA darling, but he's one of the most valuable players in college basketball this year because dot, dot, dot. And he gave uh, Sam Vecini, he's done his uh, NBA big board, his draft big board and carry. He's at number 29, which is lower than Trey at 22, Hurt at 24. Um, basically, he goes over how carry double digits every game, seven consecutive double doubles, and uh, the combined with number three um, in terms of uh, how good he is, even having said that, Stephen F. Olsen exposed a loophole in defending Carey, make him make free throws. So do you think uh, Vernon Carey, especially considering he draws the most fouls per 40 minutes of any player in the country, how much of a problem do you think his free throws are? Uh, they're rough. He's rough at the line. So they – I mean, he, he looks actually – the last couple of games he's actually shooting the ball pretty good. He looks like at the line is – I don't know if it's – his form's not changing much or anything, but he's going to get to the line a lot. So – you know, if you're hitting 50% of your free throws at the line, I mean, that's that's going to be a problem. So during that game, he missed a bunch. During the um, – trying to think of the other game, he missed a bunch of free throws. Was it the Georgetown game? It might have been. Mm-hmm. He just struggles at the line. So – but but on the flip side of that, he causes a lot of and ones, gets other players in foul trouble. So, I mean, it, it's kind of a, you know, catch-22 because – you know, he's not going to shoot the free throws very well, but I mean, he's getting there, and 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 you just hope it kind of writes itself, I guess. Okay, my response is 
something which I can understand why someone would take the other side. But number one, his form looks great. Like I don't see any issue. It his does. form, his form looks really. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, basically, yeah, he, does. he does look good. In the second Georgetown second half, he was two of six. In Stephen F. Austin's second half, he was two of nine. Those two halves, mm-hmm. he was just he went through a, a rough stretch. And as we've seen with Bigs, and if you look at the story, if you read the stories behind it, so many poor free throw shooters. It's mental more than anything else. You you read how they're always making everything in practice. Even right. guys like Shaq and Dwight Howard, who did, they were just draining everything. It becomes more mental than everything. But Carey, it's just those two halves. I, I know he also. I, I would say if he even shoots fifty percent or above, like uh, I think Georgia State, he shot fifty percent. I think that's enough. He just can't be horrific. And if you t- and it's impossible to just say, hey, eliminate those two halves against Georgetown and Stephen F. Austin. If you eliminate those two halves, he's a seventy percent free throw shooter. Obviously, that's a cop out. You can't eliminate those two halves. But I think it's still worth adding his overall sixty one point nine on the season. It's fine game to game. I I would say he just can't dip below like fifty percent in games or go through these really rough stretches. And again, those were just the second halves. In the first half of Georgetown and um, and uh, Stephen F. Austin, he was fine. It was the second halves in both those games. And uh, yeah, I mean, those were two of the close games Duke has played. So you just got you got to shoot better than that. I mean, it's that simple. But I would look at it as glass half full. All right. Um, Number four by Brendan Marks. Defense and court vision are still Trey Jones' strengths, but continued improvement shooting the ball is necessary. I think Trey's fine. I mean, I, I think <laughs> so. some of his misses are just like when nothing is going on, he just has to chuck something up. I think uh, he, he's shown so much versatility in his shot making, which is tremendous. And especially, I mean, this is something I said. I was like in the middle of writing a, uh, a feature article after um, the uh, Georgia State game just to show how remarkable it is, how his shooting is, considering he's totally remade his form. That's not, that hasn't been talked about at all. It's it Forget whether he's making or missing. The entire form is different. In terms of the wrist snap, the higher release, taking it farther back, the, the, everything is different about it. The way he holds everything. So it's really tough to all of a sudden, it's an entirely different shot in the form and the release than he's had throughout his career. I think, yes, there's... It can go up and down, but I mean, on catch and shoots, even he's he's good enough, if not better. I mean, if you look at the stats, his shooting, every category, it's good to great. It's just when it's like when the clock's winding down, there's no one else. Like he has to chuck something up. That's why you can say the percentages might dip or go up. But I do not see anything wrong with uh, Trey shooting, and combined with everything else he has to do, especially the fact that I said like there's no number, there's no like secondary ball handler besides Goldwire at this point. So it's so much on him, and he's playing always. So I'm good with his shooting. Yeah, you're not gonna get much from me. I'm not gonna say much bad about Trey right now. So I, I think he's, I think he looks better in in terms of consistency and. Man, do I love his mid-range game. His mid-range game is that little mid-range pull-up that he's got. And Listen, Trey's fine. Yeah, and that's just kind of like Wendell Moore, but I guess a little more trustworthy because we've seen Trey before. Just the fact that like some of the shots he missed early on, like he missed pretty much every runner in the first four games. But it always looked good, and I was like, 
you know what? Keep shooting it. Keep shooting that runner, the floater, and now it's starting to go. And it's just such a weapon. Like, the, the mid-range... I mean, this Duke team, I've said it before on multiple podcasts this year, I think this is the most kind of mid-range happy Duke team I've seen in a long time. Like, there's a lot of guys that can shoot the mid-range and shoot it well, and I like that. And it's Trey off the bounce. It's giving him the opportunity to shoot off the bounce. It's not just the catch and shoot like last year. So I like that. All right, number five. Trust Joey Baker, one of Kay's conundrums. Uh, When Stanley went down with a hamstring injury midway through uh, Winthrop, it was kind of what else could possibly go wrong situation for Duke, and then came the Joey Baker experience. He talks about how... uh, Baker was kind of on fire for a couple games, and then how do you square that with his 0-4 night against Virginia Tech? I thought he went 0-2, whatever. Um, but uh, reasonably, the Baker is still a young player growing into his minutes. In terms of pure shooting form, Baker might have the best or second-best stroke of anyone on the roster. Um, and uh, But figure out his, figuring out his role in the rotation, especially with Stanley back, and ready to re- reassume those minutes will be interesting to follow. Baker has real floor spacing potential, but Duke also most likely will have to live through his rough patches. How, how do you feel about that? I mean, I, I think Joey's a pretty pleasant surprise, to be honest, from from what we were expecting coming into the year. So I think he's, you know, I think there'll be games like the Virginia Tech game that, you know, maybe he isn't as much of an asset on the court as, as he's been. But I like what he can do. I like the fact that he looks like he's shooting the ball pretty confident. So that okay. that right there is is – it's helpful to have a guy that's shooting the ball, you know, a when he shot the ball, I thought it was going in. Now I don't really, <laughs> I don't really have any sort of, uh, I, I mean, he's not, he's not playing well right now, but. Hey, well, well, welcome to my world. Huh. Yeah. Well, I'm back. Yeah. I didn't want to be in that world. I wanted to be in my own world at the time, but you know, I like Joey. Joey's fine. And, and I think, you know, I think that hopefully he just gets a little better defensively and we can count on him more in, in, in different situations. Okay, first of all, O'Connell did make a couple shots against Virginia Tech at the end. I mean, it was total garbage time. He still made them. He did, those two. Yeah, he did. Yeah, and for a shooter, a lot of that's mental. Same thing with all kinds of positions like that, whether we're talking a relief pitcher in baseball, closer, or a field goal kicker. Just seeing it go through, that can be huge for the confidence. So... Again, I have nothing against Alex O'Connell. It's just at some point in time, I don't care how it looks. The thing has to go in, and hopefully this can get him going. And I mean, and especially with the way his defense sometimes is frustrating. If he's not making shots, then yikes. So if he can make shots, then maybe he can get more minutes. With Joey Baker, I disagree that it's even. I mean, okay, well, first of all, since I didn't talk to you since Michigan State. Did you see? Do you remember that play when Baker comes in on help defense and almost looks like he's trying to like karate chop the guy's head off? <laughs> that was the most insane thing I've ever seen. I'm like, what? In, what the hell are you doing? No and, easy basket. <laughs> no easy. And then there was there was another play went up. You know, I'm not even going to mention that play. Let's just say there was another play which many have not noticed. I don't think anyone's noticed. Let's just say we don't want another Grace and Allen experience on our hands. But, uh, yeah, in terms of the karate chop, that was wild. And he does have a tendency to uh, be a little foul happy. But overall, the biggest weakness I assumed, based on, like, really small samples of watching him before, was defense. And 
He's not. He actually, he's, I, I have clips. He's guarded everyone. He can guard point guards, uh, shooting guards, small forwards, uh, even bigs on occasion. Like, the thing with Joey Baker is there's two players, since you didn't hear me say this, I'll just say this real quick from the last episode. There's two players on Duke who I want to see play together more than anything because they are the only two players that have a don't give enough attitude. They are in two different ways. They are Cassius Stanley and Joey Baker. Cassius Stanley is a dog. Cassius Stanley will, will, will he he will just eat you alive. Joey Baker just has no like conscience. Joey Baker, <laughs> Joey like we talk about playing free. Joey Baker, he does not care if Joey Baker Yolo. missed seven thousand shots Yolo. in a row, he'd shoot yeah. again. Yeah, he's got the YOLO attitude out there shooting. I mean, that's an old word, an old acronym to be going with. But my man just goes out and plays ball. I Joey mean, Baker does is. not care, and I love it. I love it, and. I think those two guys, Trey, he's kind of – he's trying to develop the personality of the alpha. And I think no matter what he does, he's respected 100%. But those two players in Stanley and Baker, I love – they do not care. They will just do what it takes to get the W. They will rip somebody's half. They do not care. I want to or see them together. Or someone. Yeah, I mean I get it. <laughs> yeah, I mean so that's why like it was so frustrating to me that finally Kay realized, hey, let's play Baker versus Winthrop. But and then at the same time Stanley goes out. I want to see them together. So uh, and moving on to number six of Brendan Marks, how to align Stanley's role with his still still unrealized potential. Um, he talks about how uh, Stanley's shooting forty two point nine percent from three, providing highlight reel dunks. But what is his role? He should be given more. He's averaging uh, certain uh, a good uh, average in spot up situations. Excels in ISO. Blah blah blah. He doesn't need to be an out of this world creator. Um, so, uh, should Duke put him in better positions tailored to his skill set? And additionally, in addition to helping him drive, which will open up better opportunities for the rest of the backcourt. All right. I, I will start off because you remember our deep dive for point guards. Mm-hmm. All right. So yeah, I always said like if somebody to kind of be the guy who, who kind of goes in the corner, um, while the other one is really initiates the offense. That was Trey last year. And while it might not be, while Cassison is not the point guard, he's he's in that position now. He is in the two, the typical Duke point guard role right now, where it's just like go in the corner. And when he's run off a screen, typically it's to free him up to get the ball to get to uh, enter into Stanley. I mean, I'm sorry, to enter into a uh, carry. There's not much going on running plays for Stanley when he has excelled, especially in those second halves. I mean, he was unbelievable in the second half. I went over that uh, after the uh, 2K Classic, and a big thing about Stephen F. Alston was that was the first game he hadn't been like crazy efficient in the second half. That hurt. But the reason he's able to do that is because of the crazy efficiency. And that's asking a lot of someone to be that efficient every game. I mean, especially when uh, they're not creating a lot of turnovers, they're not leaking out much. So he was amazing at the start of the season in uh, transition. He was shooting 6 of 7, I think, after uh, the first couple games. He's now shooting 9 of 20 in transition and just overall. But Stanley, it's just hard to say, like, they should get him more involved when this is kind of the role, which I hate so much that Duke point guards have constantly been in, I do think they can use him more. I do think they should get him more involved to score, for scoring opportunities, rather than just to kind of dump it in or 
hit a corner three in transition. I don't, based on case history, I don't see that happening. Based on what I would like, I sure hell hope so. I mean, I I think regardless of what situation we truly put um, Stanley in, I think his skill set kind of can adapt to whatever they're doing. So he's more of a he's more of a hill in the right situation kind of guy. So I you know I think we can get him a little more involved on the offensive end and maybe see him if he can create a little more. But I do you know I I I'm pleasantly surprised on how on how Stanley's been playing. Uh, from pretty much from game one. So one thing that, I mean, it's impossible to even say it was anything legit, but like the blue right scrimmage, I, I remember, cause I mean, you have half the team split, obviously, but I remember like I, Stanley was actually, he ran a little bit of backup point guard when Trey didn't bring, bring it up. He hasn't been, I mean, Wendell Moore, right from the start, he's been kind of the guy who initiated and Goldwire obviously as well. Stanley has never really been given a chance, and I have to assume it's just based on practice. He's not proven himself a worthy ball handler. I would like to at least see that from my, from my own eyes. It's frustrating that I haven't. That's something I guess I just have to trust with Kay, but he really hasn't gotten an opportunity to be a ball handler ever. It's not like he's screwing up. I just haven't seen it. So I don't know. That's something where it would be interesting to see what would happen if he got more opportunities. Uh, number seven, Wendell Moore's best role is to be determined, but there have been glimpses. Um, so basically, it goes, it goes into, to be kind, Duke's uh, Moore's start to this season has been shaky. Outside of a 17-point showing against Georgetown, his shooting hasn't been noteworthy. He's turned the ball over a lot. Against the Hokies, something happened. Kay opted for a small ball lineup to counter Virginia Tech's, and Moore took over. He scored all 12 in the second half, operating as something as a point forward. He handled the ball, charged well into space, and finished around the rim. It was refreshing, but it was also overdue. The real question, is it a sign of things to come? You want to go first or me? Oh, well, well, let me add one more thing. A potential solution, let Moore operate off the bench as an initiator for the second unit. He and Jordan Goldwire can split ball handling duties, all while allowing Moore to flex a little bit of his offensive muscle. So let me just say, first of all, there is no second unit. Trey doesn't come off the floor. <laughs> like, he doesn't come off the floor. I gave the, like, unless Duke is blowing a team out and it's garbage time in the second half, there is no second <laughs> unit. So, like, first of all, that's immediately out the window. Like, I don't know what second unit is being imagined, but Trey, he will he will have breakfast, lunch, and dinner on the court if Duke is playing. Like, he's never coming Andrew. off the floor. Like, that's just what Andrew. it is. I yeah. mean, he's, he's, every meal is being consumed by a tray on the court. Yeah, he will set up a bed for him. He can take naps at times. Like on the, He's not coming off. That's just it. All right, so besides that, what did you see out of Wendell Moore versus Virginia Tech that gives you hope except for the fact that, like, he converted good chances. He, he had this crazy, weird, lucky running banker. He basically, he converted the easy chances. Goldwire created um, a really nice layup for him. And he didn't turn the ball over, even though a couple of his passes were almost picked. Look, I think I, I'm a believer in more. I don't think Virginia Tech showed any. You can't just go by stats. Because if you just go by stats, yeah, it looks like Moore was great in the second half. I didn't see anything that was different, except he didn't kind of try to do too much. And he was able to play with two ball handlers. Goldwire and Trey at the same time, so we didn't. Ha- so we there was no pressure on him to create. Did you see something that I didn't? No, 
I mean, he had a good game. He had a good second half. He made some he made some plays down the stretch, but I I didn't see anything out of more that I haven't already seen in the past. So just, <laughs> do you his, remember your, his, your reaction after Georgetown was like, he's a star. I see it. I see it in his eyes. He's the fire you in his could eyes. See <laughs> so so you could see he's got he's got the skill set to do it, but the frustration that I have on my part is he's so inconsistent. I mean, you know, one time I mean he had one point against Michigan State. He had one more point than I did again. He was great me all year. I can already tell. So I'm, he's going to be that guy that he's going to touch the ball. I'm like, no, no, yes, good shot. Like that kind of guy that's just going to be my – there's always one on every roster, and it seems like Wendell Moore is going to be that one this year for me. So, But, I mean, I I do like him. I think he could be a mismatch at the power forward if he can, you know, become a little more consistent on the offensive end. So, Yeah, I mean, you would hope he becomes more consistent, but the defensive end is where I think his advantage will be displayed the most. And mm-hmm. I thought he was great. I thought he was great. I mean, he might – I mean, his impact against Georgetown and Virginia Tech, wow, noticeable on offense in the box score. I mean, his impact the most overall is going to come from defense, and I think he's a work in progress in the offensive end. Um, so I didn't think Virginia Tech changed anything about what I thought, that just be patient with the dude. He will be worth it in the long run. All right, uh, number eight, an easy pick for most underrated player. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the artist known as uh, Jay Gold. That's what uh, Brendan writes. He says he's not the flashiest guy on the team. His offense is suspect, to say the least. But this year, unlike in seasons past when he may have forced a shot at times, Goldwire seems to be more accepting of his role, and the results have paid off. He has the second-highest assist percentage on the team and the highest steal percentage. He isn't someone that will light up the stat sheet, but uh, paired with Jones, one of the best defensively any team in college hoops can muster. All right. First, so, I, w- I will say that First thing is I disagree with the most underrated player. I do agree that it's obvious. I do agree that it's obvious for an easy pick. I would say it's Jack White, not Jordan Goldwire. But I do think it's obvious. To talk about Goldwire, I'm not sure when he forced a shot at times last year. I think there was four games total when he shot over twice. And I think five games total, and two, only two of them came after December. And only one, and one of them was the UCF game when UCF wasn't even guarding anyone. So I don't know when he forced his shot at times, considering it was two shots or less every time. But I don't know. So I don't think he ever forced a shot. In terms of uh, steal percentage, I think his steal percentage is higher because he gets burned sometimes. Um, but I do think it's impossible to deny Duke does create more steals, and the stats show it when he's in there. And especially in the backcourt, his assist percentage, a lot of it's been in transition. He has, I think, eight assists in in transition, nine assists in the half court. So I think uh, it helps the transition. With the defense, it's it's tough because I think um, Goldwire, with his experience, maybe he's kind of, he's smarter with when to take risks. But I do think he pays for those risks a lot, and he's burned. Stanley, I think it's not even close. I think Stanley and Jones are a much better backcourt. While it may not consistently create as many steals or end turnovers, I think it's much better in terms of just locking the other team down. But that's not taking anything away from Goldwire. So uh, do you agree that Goldwire is the most underrated player, or would you have a, a different opinion? Yeah, I don't I don't think he's the most underrated player. Um, I think he is semi-underrated in terms of just what he brings table and he doesn't really demand much offense. He doesn't demand, you know, you don't have to run plays through Goldwire, but you can, 
Um, the fact he was able to hit a couple jump shots was nice. That that's an element of the game that that were helpful in the first half. Yes, uh, yes, yesterday the, through the Virginia game, but just I think I, I think I would side with I think I would side with you in the fact that Jack Weiss had a huge impact on some of these games, like the outcomes of the games, and and I think he would be the most underrated in my opinion, but. Also, but I just I think Goldwater is growing and he's becoming more confident, and I think that's going to be a stretch for them to give them a you know a, a secondary or, or, or pretty much just a secondary ball handler because Trey will you're going to have to he'll be peeled to the floor at all times, so he will have to he will be on the court at all times, and even if, we'll play six guys before we take Trey off the court. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think just, I mean, no, no, go ahead, you're good, go ahead. Um, I, I think Goldwire, I mean, the shooting, it's kind of the same thing I said when you uh, complimented Wendell Moore, which was deservedly so when he made the shot against Georgetown, but I said, like, don't count on it. And I would say the same thing against Goldwire, don't count on it. And um, But, yeah, the secondary ball handler, that aspect, until Wendell Moore gets more reliable on that, because even, like, the Georgetown game, he turned it over seven times that game. And there was uh, some close calls oh. against um, – against Virginia BT. Tech. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, he still needs to prove how worthy he is, and if uh, Stanley's not getting really the chance to handle the ball much, then, um, I mean, you could always let Joey Baker run point. That would be an adventure, which I, I'm ready for. You don't care? He's like he's like Fitzmagic. He's like Fitzpatrick of the NFL, and he don't care. He just scored. All that he cares about is if somebody catches a touchdown. It doesn't have to be his guy or your guy. As long as somebody gets a touchdown, that's how, that's how he operates. By the way, I think it's fascinating real quick that I will say uh, it's funny because three quarterbacks lead their team in rushing. I don't even like watch the NFL anymore, but I just found these stats interesting. Lamar Jackson leads his team rushing with over 1,000. Um, shoot, what's his name for the Cardinals? Kyler, oh, Kyler Murray. Murray. Kyler Murray leads his team with 500. Ryan Fitzpatrick leads his team with like 210 yards rushing. So it's like everyone's – all they say is, hey, Ryan Fitzpatrick, he's leading the Dolphins in rushing. Yeah, that's because like nobody else on the team runs for anything. But it's interesting how all three all three of those guys lead their team in rushing, but it's very different amounts. Very different yeah. amounts. Yeah. Lamar's a slightly better athlete than, than Fitzmagic, but... I would disagree. I, would, I, th- I think Buckmeyer's the best athlete among them. Um, the tape line. Well, obviously. All right. Um, so, And I do know that uh, we're getting close to NFL kickoff time, so um, there is one huge subject, which I will leave to... The uh, to the deep dive I plan to do, whether it'll be with Joe or whether it'll be with uh, the person who I won't mention, because as has happened many times in life, not everything is guaranteed. Hopefully we will get that going, because this is something which, I mean, it seems as obvious to me as like how Duke couldn't shoot last year and the specifics of how and where and all that they couldn't shoot, but it wasn't talked about last year until like Central Florida by kind of the... Uh, national people even like a lot of duke people they're just like no see they can make shots occasionally like against virginia i'm like i feel look what they did against virginia was just weird outliers and i feel bad for virginia almost because they played duke so well and duke just made shots they didn't make at any other point in time all year but either way what's happening with duke right now the most obvious thing is not being talked about at all and the re and what and the what's causing it that is going to be a huge, huge focus of what I talk about. Hopefully, 
the uh, Wofford game doesn't totally mess up um, in terms of what I feel is the context involved in that. But just keep in mind, Duke's biggest issue, the, the most defining aspect about Duke, will be what I discuss a lot in the deep dive. But let's quickly finish up here because I know you got to get going for the football. I know you have your fantasy football, which you have like millions and millions and billions of dollars riding on. So finishing up, uh, he's number nine, as expected. The defense is elite, but there's one potential hole that could come back to bite in March. All right, so the Duke is third overall, allowing .77 points per possession percentage. Box scores back that up. Uh, outside of Stephen F. Austin, overtime, no opponent scored more than 75 points, including games against Michigan State and Kansas, and it holds up well across the board. In every category but offensive putback situations. In that regard, the defense has been well below average, allowing opponents to convert 21 of their 34 putback opportunities. That partially speaks to a lack of interior depth behind Carey and Javin Delorier. And uh, Brennan admits he's nitpicking, but he does uh, think it's uh, a legit thing worth monitoring. How do you feel about that stat? I mean, I see. I don't know. I guess. I guess I don't go too deep into the stats in terms of. I think they're they're good. They've been good defensively in most games. I mean, they've had some issues uh, protecting the paint, which is going to be a problem once we start playing teams with a little better athletes. But I, I don't know. I mean, I think they hold. I mean, being third in that category, I, they're probably. My guess would be they're probably one of the. Well, obviously, Virginia is always number one. So everybody starts after Virginia. But I. Well, I'm sorry. Real quick, let me of, say I was talking about strictly his focus on Duke being not great at putbacks. Like, against when a team gets an offensive oh, I rebound. Oh, talking about the actual defensive. No, the defense off. is great. But, I mean, I'm just yeah. in terms of, like, that's what he's monitoring, the putbacks, because that's Duke's weakness. I mean, I mean, we, we tend to have. We tend to have some issues in terms of yeah i mean you're right i mean i never even really thought about it because i know we get a good a good uh i thought we were rebounding the ball well from, from just being an outsider watching the game you know i i, I thought we've done good on the defensive and the offensive end in terms of rebounding uh but letting up second chance and and, and scoring second chance has been i i guess it has been a bigger issue than i would have expected so i actually kind of agree with that okay i fully disagree um, Obviously, you and I wouldn't do this together if we if we agreed on everything. So it's good, you know what I mean? Different <laughs> different aspects, different eyes. No, I just think it's important to like because just when people mention stats, it's important to understand why they're happening, where they're coming from, and I'm right. trying to figure out why that was even mentioned. Because let's look more specifically. Duke is poor on defense against putbacks. That's odd to focus on because most teams are bad against putbacks. Considering a putback is usually a super high percentage thought, uh, shot, the only thing is just how bad. So Duke just happens to be a little worse. But how do you counter that? By not allowing many putbacks. By only giving up 23.7% of offensive rebounds. That's ranked number 37 in the country, according to Ken Palm. So that's really good. They're not giving up many. But so if, if like you barely give up any putbacks, but when you do, it's converted... It's not a big deal because you don't give up many. It's like, right. oh, you're giving up. You, the, when it, uh, teams are shooting 80% from three against you, you've given up two three-pointers the whole season. It's like, well, it's not a big deal because it's only two shots. I mean, for those who listen to my deep dive podcast, including the standout positive and negative stats for Duke, the Blue Devils are damn near always bad and typically in the bottom half, like, worse. 
Like the, the past four seasons, Duke is ranked number 330, 208, 236, and 230, and 238 in, uh, in defensive rebounding. So right now, ranking number 37 in the country is like magical. So personally, I do not care about whatever percentage they give up on putbacks. So that's, that's my opinion in terms of putbacks. The fact that they're not allowing many chances is way more important than giving up a high percentage when they do allow them. That's just, that's my takeaway. So uh, I think that, what do you have, one more? It says, this isn't the Duke of the last five years. This is number 10, but especially in the not great year for college basketball, it's still in the cluster of elite teams. To me, that that's impossible to not deny. I mean, with the way things are going in college basketball, um, yeah, I, I mean, there's, at least right now, it, Duke is not some tremendous team. I don't think any team is a tremendous team. I think a lot of it's wait and see. Um, and I think this team is fun. I've said over and over this team is fun because there will be constant adjustments. There will be a need for constant adjustments. The Stephen F. Austin loss was not, in my opinion, it was not because Duke didn't have the fire in their eyes. They didn't have the heart. They didn't deserve to wear the Duke jersey. They, they, uh, they, they, it was a trap game or any other cliche people are using. There was no magical message received by the team from Kett. There was nothing of that. There were certain small aspects that are always mental with the game and more than others sometimes. But the cliches, I don't know. I think it was K adjusted better in, uh, in Michigan State and Virginia Tech. I think it was better matchups all around. I think the Duke's team, the, the versatility was shown. And I think, I mean, with Brandon calls it a Joey Baker experience, you never know how it's going to go. I, th- I think he's been great. I think he's a huge addition to the team. And I think he will be even bigger for what I mentioned in terms of the deep dive, whether it's with you or with the other person. Joey Baker's going, he's so good. He's going to be huge just specifically for that. All right, so but before I let you go, is there anything else uh, – Worth mentioning that we forgot or that uh, you want to you want to get in? No, no. I mean, I think just to piggyback off what you mentioned about the um, Duke being in a – well, he mentioned that Duke is in a small cluster of teams that could potentially be um, elite or whatever the case may be. I think, like you mentioned, it's, it's, it's a down year overall for college basketball. It is not that – no, this is the best team in the country, and it's not even close. But I do think that at the end of the year, if they can work on maybe um, shoring up a couple areas, maybe find a little more consistency on the offensive end, I think – I mean, I, I, I could see this Duke team being successful. So I think part of that is my bias of hoping it's going to happen. But the other part is, you know, I think, I think they've shown signs of, of being able to um, – you know, be good top, good competition, and I just, you know, I'm excited to see how how things roll going into conference play, and and you know, we'll we'll see what happens. But in terms of Joey Baker, I mean, I think he's going to play a huge role on our team down the stretch. So, you know, it's nice it's nice to have a little depth this year, opposed to the last the last couple of years we've had because we've had to rely on pretty much two to three guys at all times. So, do you think he should have teamed up with? Uh... Freddy Krueger to make a uh, fr- Friday the Baker's Dozen. Never mind. It was Friday the 13th the other day. That was awful. I apologize for that. Um, uh, how about one more? Uh, should, should Joey Baker, should he do a podcast with Quinn Cook and have uh, Emil Jefferson on 
as a, as, as a co-host or as a guest sometimes to make it uh, more food-oriented. And then you could, you could have Quinn Cook, you could have Joey Baker and Carlos Boozer. It would be Baker, it would be Cook, Cook, Bacon, Booze. I think that's what I want to call it with special guest Emil Jefferson to make a meal of it. Checks all the boxes for me. I'd listen in. So, <laughs> all right. Last quick, quick thing, just really quick stats. Two things to to monitor. Duke needs to shoot better at the rim, especially like in every aspect. If you eliminate dunks, Duke players shooting fifty percent plus at the rim. Small, tiny sample. O'Connell four or five. Goldwire nine of twelve. After that, only Vernon Carey at sixty percent. Trey Jones at fifty percent or above fifty percent. Everyone else is below 50%. Need to uh, start converting at the rim. In terms of three-pointers, this is this is something where in the, in the five games when Duke has shot 22 and above, they are shooting 28.3%. In the games that they are uh, shooting um, 22... Wait a minute. Hold on. Okay. In the games when Duke shot less than 22, they're shooting 46.6. So you just got to be smart with when you attempt the shots and, and again, just kind of a one more small preview of that. It applies to what I'll be talking about next time in terms of when, what exactly specifically I'm going to deep dive, which uh, gets a little more complicated. But I, I think that uh, sums it up pretty well for now. Duke's had, obviously, two really impressive wins, and this is a bit after I assume most have uh, – kind of moved on from those two games, but either way, I'm not concerned about how recent or anything that is. I'm concerned about giving the best information possible. So there's plenty more to give. I will be back soon. And Duke has uh, waffled the last Thursday game of the year. So hopefully they don't go down similar to UNC and they can come out on top. And then after that, it's another break. And it's in that time when I'll record the deep dive before they play, who is it, Brown on the 28th? Yeah, it's Brown. Brown, yeah. What can Brown do for you? And then after that, it is all ACC all the time, and it'll be consistent. Start, starting with Brown, that will be they, – they play every Saturday, I believe, for the rest of the year. By the way, do you know why they don't play a Sunday? Is that just Duke or is that the ACC period? I don't even know. I don't know. I mean, ACC used to always have a game on Sunday. I don't remember. I remember Duke playing some games on Sunday, you know, back in the day. So, I don't know. I, I don't I, – <clears throat> I do know that – um I prefer them to play on Saturday, honestly, but maybe maybe they just took my schedule in consideration. I'm not sure. So. That was very nice of them. All right, so that's, that sums it up. I'll be back soon. Covered a lot uh, this podcast. Duke is 9-1, um, various rankings, mostly in the top five, with Wofford coming up next. And, uh, yeah, we're almost to the new year. So uh, that's all we have for now. I will be talking to everyone soon. Joe, thanks for joining me as usual. And I appreciate everyone listening to the Duke Basketball Corner podcast. Rate and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get them. That is the way to get this out to more people so they will hear the information they are likely not hearing anywhere else, including some they might hear, but along with additional information I give that goes beyond the ordinary. So thanks so much for listening. I am Adam Comero, and I will be talking to everyone soon.